In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakul. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. So you don't know to call in 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcasts on iTunes. Again, studio number 3104410555. Okay, so we didn't have a show Monday, so I'll announce the book of the week for this week. It is... Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People by Mazarin Banaji and Anthony Greenwald. And so this book, I'm looking forward to reading it, especially these days, as I guess in a lot of days, there's so much talk about racism and discrimination of different types, which are real issues that face the world. And this book looks at some of those issues, some things that might lead to some of the biases that we all have. And as I've mentioned before, it's not just that some people are racist. We all have different biases about different groups of people, whether we want to believe it or see it or not. And this book looks at that. And of course, just because we have those biases doesn't mean it's okay to act on them. That's where the discrimination aspect comes into play. Um, But looking forward to reading this book, which I have not read before, but then talking about it on next week's show. But coming to the book for this past week, The Strange Order of Things by Antonio Damasio. The Strange Order of Things, Life, Feeling, and the Making of Cultures. This was a really interesting book um, and very dense with a lot of information and very scientific, but really brought up a lot of interesting issues that I'll share some of them with you or the way that uh, Dr. Antonio Damasio talks about how cultures maybe have come to be and bringing it all the way back, not just to primates, but to unicellular organisms like bacteria. Uh, So usually when people talk about culture, they say human beings have culture, we created culture from arts and sciences because of our great minds. And there's some truth to that, that the what we've been able to accomplish is only possible with the brains that we have. But he shows that it goes back a lot further than that, and we have to look at it in a different way. So um, to begin with, he emphasizes the importance of homeostasis and looking at all of these things and how actually most of us think of this term homeostasis not in the full picture of what it actually is. I always remember hearing about homeostasis in biology class or um, things of that sort, and it would be about kind of like a thermostat, that was the analogy often used, that helps us keep things within a certain balance and to keep an equilibrium that helps keep the organism, whether it's a human being or another animal or even a 
unicellular organism, but keeps that being alive and keeps a balance. And always that understanding that I had was that homeostasis was about just maintaining a balance, not about anything else. But as he describes in the book, that's really not the full idea of what homeostasis is. Because if we just keep a balance, if we keep everything even, then there's no space to flourish and there's also no space to withstand stresses that come in your life. Um, an analogy you can use is if you're trying to maintain a bank account, if your income and your expenses are exactly even, yes, you'll have some kind of equilibrium, but there's no space to grow. And also, if you face some kind of stress, you won't be able to handle it. So as he mentions, homeostasis is not just about keeping things balanced, but also about flourishing, about advancing and trying to prosper because life needs to prosper to advance if you're not growing you're dying. So that's another aspect that has to be taken into account, which is very important. So as he describes, every organism really has uh, a level of homeostasis or has this, this concept of homeostasis pushing it forward. And even in bacteria, we see that they respond to their environment. Not only do they respond to their environment, they also respond to other bacteria of their own type and others. So there's even what he talks about social um, aspects to their behavior, which we might not think about of bacteria having social behavior. There is a funny kind of a pun, you can say, because we use that word culture when we talk about bacteria cultures, but it's not the same culture that we talk about when we look at the arts and sciences. But he says that we could even, in a way, stretch back these ideas of where culture comes from to even bacteria who are trying to survive in this way, who respond socially even to the ones around them and make adjustments based on that. And of course, when we look at the world of even insects who are further back from us, evolutionarily speaking, we also see lots of social behaviors. When you see the ways that ants or bees interact and the various things they do, there's a lot of um, social aspects to what they are doing. And so we can see that we don't have to look just to primates to see where we get our sociality and where we get our ideas of culture. So going back to the idea of bacteria and how they might relate to all of this, we see that even they have what we might call the basis of emotions. Because for example, if you poke this organism, it will do what we might think of as a cringe. It'll respond. It will emote in that way. And so even back then, we see this idea of responding to things in the environment, and it gives it information, or it also reacts in a way that helps continue its survival. Now, as he describes in the book, you can't have feelings until, and feelings is that subjective experience of what you are experiencing, until we had things like a brain that could create images, that could also create a perspective of who you were. And I won't get into all the details because it is very complicated and even hard for me to explain and describe, but about how consciousness comes about. But when we look at our own experience, when we have consciousness, we have a subjective experience that this is happening to me, that I am feeling these things that I'm experiencing these things, that we don't think other 
unicellular things like bacteria can experience, but we see that the basis of emotions and the basis of feelings can be traced all the way back to them. Now, there's some other interesting ideas that come up in the book. One was that we tend to usually think of the body as serving the brain. So we think that we have the brain and we have also our mind and even how we differentiate those can be interesting. And we think that because in a way that's where the seat of consciousness is or the seat of where I am and what I experience, we think that the body is serving the brain. But actually when we think about it, it really is the other way around. The body was there. There was organisms that had bodies and the nervous systems came into play to actually better increase their chances of survival. So our brain in a way Although, yes, it's also part of the body. And this is where when we try to really differentiate these things, we see that they are really one and the same. But our brains are in a way serving the body to make sure it survives. And so that was an interesting concept for me to think of it in that way. I always tend to think of it as the other way around. And also, when we think about the mind, we tend to think that it all comes from the brain, that the brain is the main thing that makes up our mind or how we think. But as he describes, there's also the nervous system that runs through all of us, including especially the gut, the stomach. And there's a lot of our nervous system that comes from that. And actually, incredibly, as he mentions, the nerve, the enteric, which is like the, the gut nervous system, produces 95% of the body's serotonin, which is Uh, a neurotransmitter notable for its key role in disorders of affect and in their correction. And I was really struck by that number. 95% of our serotonin is uh, created or produced in the gut. And we see that this idea of having quote-unquote gut feelings that we've maybe always talked about or we mentioned, there seems to be a lot of truth in that, that the nervous system is not something that just exists in the brain or the brain isn't the only thing that gives us feelings or emotions even without the experience of the body or other parts of the body or even the fact that the nervous system is not just in the brain we see that the interconnectedness is even more than we might have realized that it's not just about the brain when it comes to the ideas of feeling and even feeling itself is this ongoing experience that we have about how we are doing. So it has a valence in a way we can say positive or negative, pain or pleasure. And you maybe heard me talk before that we always have a feeling state because sometimes we think, oh, I don't have any feelings or I'm not feeling anything. But as he describes, we always have a feeling. We might not be in touch with it. We might not be connected to it, but it's always there. There's something there telling us that either we're feeling good or bad, that things are in a good state and we can continue them as they are, or something is not okay and we need to do something about it. And our feelings serve that function of always telling us what is going on within us to, again, promote that homeostasis, make sure that we are okay, and also try to further us going forward. So we always have feelings and What we want to actually try to do is get in touch with that feeling. Now, what I think is interesting is when we look at ideas of meditation and mindfulness, one of the things we talk about is connecting ourselves more to what we are feeling. 
And in doing that, also what meditation does, and you'll even have some types of meditation that do this, they'll specifically focus on getting more in contact or more in connection with your body. What are you feeling throughout your body? Because as I was just mentioning, a lot of what we actually are feeling is what's going on in our body. That is a big part of our feelings. And so the more we connect with that, the more we are connected to our feelings which we're experiencing all throughout our body. So that does make sense um, in what we see with meditation and mindfulness. And of course, in today's day and age where we are more and more disconnected to ourselves or from ourselves, where we actually don't know what's going on within us because we don't make the effort to actually connect, it, it makes sense in the scope of this book as well. Now, coming back to this idea of culture, he talks about that culture has come about to promote our homeostasis and promote our well-being. So it's not just something that came out of a vacuum or because we have these minds that now can think of these things creatively, but that actually they serve a function of promoting our well-being and our survival. That things like the sciences, of course, we can understand medicine was made to help us heal and uh, to feel better and to extend our life and to definitely contribute to our survival. So that makes sense. And even he says what's interesting about feelings and how they work so well is that when I feel bad, that signal tells me I'm not doing okay. And that gives me information. And that's good. But what's also good is that the feeling itself can tell me when I'm doing better. So if I start to feel better, I know I'm feeling that this is good. It gives me that information. So if you, before you go to the doctor, you know, okay, my stomach hurts. And then when you go to the doctor, he or she will give you some kind of remedy or whatever it might be. And then you can de determine if this information is good based on how you start to feel. So the feeling gives you the information in that sense as well. So we can see that feelings serve a very important function and in some ways an efficient function to help us understand both if we're doing okay or not. And also if what we're doing is helping us feel better. But also going back to this idea of culture, things like the arts can contribute in helping us feel better emotionally or to deal with things like the pain of loss or grief. And that could be a way to actually help us experience those things in a better way. So culture, as he describes in the book and the arts and the sciences, isn't just an intellectual endeavor or something that we can do because we are now smart enough to do it, but they serve the function of helping us actually survive, helping us deal with life and what was going on, maybe even the unpredictabilities of life, the pains of life, and helping us feel better. So it's a really fascinating um, discussion or a book, but that brings up a lot of interesting ideas and concepts and connects things in ways that I did not ever really think about or see. And that's why I really did enjoy this book, which is um, the latest book from Antonio Damasio, who's also written some other really uh, well-known books like Descartes' Air. But if you are ready to really get into some of the science of feelings and looking at where they might have come from, going all the way back to the first life we had here on Earth, unicellular organisms, this is a very interesting book and an interesting read, The Strange Order of Things, Life, Feeling, and the Making of Cultures by Antonio Damasio. And again, the book for this week is Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People by Mazarin Banaji and Anthony Greenwald. 
All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. back studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 let's go to a caller radio hamra you're on the air uh hi thank you so much for taking my call sure thanks for calling yeah sure actually um i'm a new mom and i have a three months old uh, son mm-hmm. and uh we have uh, i have two questions the first one is about the I really like him too when he grows up read books or so that's why I read him books from mm-hmm. now even when he was uh, before he was born even mm-hmm. when I was pregnant I was reading him books but my question is that my first language is Farsi the same as my husband's is so both of us just talk in Farsi at home and we talk in Farsi with our son so the question is that because most of the books that I have, they are in English. Is that okay for him to read in English, or he he gonna get confused and it's better just reading Farsi or or, or I mean just say I can translate the uh-huh. text of the books because they're really simple. The first question I have is that okay, so yes. so to begin with, um, what you're describing is what a lot of parents can feel this idea that they have to start from such a young age getting their kids educated and kind of educated in the formal sense of reading and writing and arts and sciences or whatever it might be and to to give you a little bit of hopefully comfort you don't need to worry too much right now or even for a while about that about getting your son to like to read especially at three months old he doesn't really even quite know what he's looking at or what's going on. So um, we, you don't have to get put too much pressure on that. And even um, these ideas, there's a you know big movement and also a big business about getting kids from you know, infancy to start learn things, baby Einstein and other things like that. And the research shows that those kinds of things don't really do much and there's no need to do that, especially some of them involve videos and having the kids look at screens, which is not good for them, both visually and in their developing brain. So just, I know you haven't mentioned that yet, but I wanted to make that point because I see a lot of parents thinking, okay, if I want my kid to be as smart as he or she can be and to succeed academically, we have to start as early as possible. And that's not the case. When they're infants, it's more focused on the connection. Actually talking to him um, will be even better with eye contact and using what most people do anyway, which sometimes is referred to as mother ease, where you go, you know, what we kind of call baby talk, and you go high and low with your voice, that's actually going to be what he's going to need more than the books. So that's going to be more important than the books itself. As far as the language goes, there's a few things to consider. Um, Even I'll share my own experience. My first language, and maybe some people will find this hard to believe, 
because of how bad my Farsi is now, or my Persian is now, uh, was Persian. So I learned that first from talking to all the people in the home. And some of that, I think, was because they also didn't want me to have an accent, which all of them had to some degree. So I learned mm -hmm. Persian from speaking and then from TV, things like Sesame Street. I started to learn English and then went to school. And thankfully, I it turned out okay as far as language goes. So um, that's one thing to consider that if you you and your husband, you feel like you might have a slight accent that talking to your child in English might have that effect and him learning Persian first to me can be okay. So I wouldn't put a pressure on that. Um, but I hear in even what you're saying, a, a strong pressure of, okay, if we read to him in Farsi, is that could encourage him to read in Farsi or in English? And I want you again to take that pressure off of you if you want to read him books at three months he really is not going to get what's going on or even know what you're looking at or that the things you're saying even mm -hmm. you know for him to comprehend much we don't know exactly what he's comprehending but we know it's not going to be he's not going to be able to put together that there's a book and books are good or anything of that sort he's just feeling going back to what i was talking about in the previous segment he's just feeling either ple pleasure or pain pleasant or unpleasant is really the only thing he's going to be able to feel and we want to make him feel pleasant as much as possible and that things will get taken care of for him yeah. so i would really yeah. reduce that pressure you're putting on how do we get him to like to read um reading is good i'm definitely not against that but we don't want to put too much of a pressure especially from even this age that reading is the good thing because we know actually for him for quite a while what's going to be most important is play and playing where you engage with him, where you connect with him. That's going to be how he learns about the world, learns about his feelings. So even more in these three months, even up to like two, like three years, it's still going to be about play. And even as he gets older, books can become part of it and you can incorporate that. But, um, you know, that's going to take some time. Yeah. And of course, as yeah. He, yeah, and as he gets older, we also know that if he sees you and his father reading, that also sends a positive message, as we know, um, it's all about do, not do what I say, but do what I do. So if you just mm -hmm. tell him, but it seems like you're trying to do that with him, read books with him. But at this age, three months, he's not really understanding or getting any messages about books being good or bad or reading being good or bad. So I wouldn't focus too much or stress about that. Uh, okay, so thank you so much. And then another question is that, you know, you also mentioned about the importance of play. Mm -hmm. I think is that, <clears throat> I stay at home because I, I really want to dedicate at least the two years stay at home instead of going to work. So, you know, that he has me at home and play with him. But then the thing is that because like, I, I have other, like, friends who have, like, a new mom or so, they, what they're telling me is that I play, like, so much time with our, with our son. I mean, as long as he's awake, I'm just next to wherever he sits or wherever he's, like, laying down, you know. I'm uh -huh. just next to him always. Is that healthy or is this is too much that I'm doing? Because I'm a little afraid because, like, whenever I leave him and then he's awake, he starts crying. Is that normal? Well, it can be. I mean, at three months, we do want to give him some space, and especially as he's getting older, making sure he does have some space. And even in how I hear you talk, I hear an anxiety about, which in general, I mean, even about the question you had that about him being okay, that we have to be concerned that we don't get so um, fixated on making sure he's always happy 
and uh-huh. always smiling. As he gets older, right now we have to make sure he's always comfortable. But a three-month-old, of course, is going to cry every day. And he will be crying for quite a while every day. And that's just part of how he's communicating. So that's okay. But my concern and how I'm hearing you talking is that as he gets older, when he experiences that he's crying or he expresses that he's not happy and crying, you might react too strongly to that in that quickly we have to make him stop crying. And that the focus is just on stop crying rather than making sure you connect with him, show him you know what he's feeling or try to understand what he's feeling, that it's okay for him to feel that way and you're Mm -hmm. going to comfort him. So that's something I'm feeling in how you describe how close you are to him and connected to him is that you're almost afraid for him to feel any kind of pain or discomfort. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, and... And that's something that, you know, of course, we want to take care of our kids. I'm not saying let him suffer in any way or feel a lot of pain, but that we have to accept that he's going to be uncomfortable. He's going to feel pain. He's going to cry. And our goal shouldn't always be just to make him stop crying, especially as he gets older. Because as he gets older, we take care of him, but he also learns to take care of himself more. Once he can suck on his own thumb, once he can kind of grab things, he can do a little bit of the soothing himself. And if we don't give him any opportunity to do that, he actually doesn't get to grow emotionally and learn to take care of himself. So that's something I would just hear in what you, uh, that I hear in what you described or how you describe things that you might get too focused on eliminating pain only or mm-hmm. letting him not feel pain. And that can be a problem. Now, spending time with him at this age, it is good to be engaged with him. And sometimes you can, you know, babies have tummy time and they try to, uh, that could be good for them physically and just to, to spend that time and that can be okay. So you don't have to be attached at hip with him, attached at the hip. Um, it doesn't sound bad, but the way you describe it, it could sound like you might be too over involved with him, which especially as he gets older right now, three months, it could be okay. But especially as he gets older, we do have to give him a little bit of space to explore, to go do things, to experience things. And of course, the older and older he gets, the more we give him that space. So that's something that I could hear in in you that I would want you to be aware of is, am I sometimes too much hovering over him, you know, and and making sure everything he does is feels good rather than feels bad. He's going to have, you know, a lot of different types of experiences. Okay. Yeah, thank you so much. Sure. Thank you. Okay, have a good day. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for calling. Oh, okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Sure, bye-bye. So I'm glad, you know, she called with those questions because um, new parents, of course, there's so many questions they have. And, and very often we're looking for the one right answer of exactly what we're supposed to do, whereas usually there isn't always that. Sometimes there are some more things that are black and white, but usually we're dealing with gray areas. Um, But more important is how we relate to the kid. And something that I felt with her, which is what I shared, and the baby's only three months, so it's hard to tell, but something that is so important for me is that parents often, they uh, ascribe to this philosophy that I like to call, which is the pain prevention philosophy of parenting, which means that my job as a parent is to make sure my kid never feels anything bad. And when they're infants, we're supposed to attend to their needs, and we don't want to make them feel pain. So I'm not saying let them feel pain then. But especially as they get older, if we have this philosophy and mentality that my role as a parent is to make sure my kid never feels any pain, it actually becomes less about loving them and more about interfering with their growth. Because growth involves some level of pain and discomfort. Pain is actually something that can 
help the kid understand how to then take care of themselves more, something that we know kids, uh, even from a young age and later in infancy, can start to do. So if we have that mentality that my role is to prevent pain, we actually interfere with a lot of the natural processes that our kids need to go through. And that's why I wanted to mention that with her and talk a bit about it more, talk about it a little bit more now, is that we have to give our kids that space to go through things as they get older. They're going to have emotional pain. Kids bother them at school. And rather than just eliminate the problem, we want to help them understand it and deal with what's going on. Our job isn't to prevent pain. Our job is to promote growth and development. And growth and development inevitably involves some level of discomfort. And another note about uh, getting our kids to learn from infancy, this is something that is becoming more and more of a movement that parents and in today's day and age where there's so much competitiveness and even through social media, even more competitiveness about what your kids are doing at what age and how early you start teaching them this or that. We see that these things don't matter much in infancy about teaching them numbers or letters or words. We have to let them develop at their own pace and not get too fixated on trying to teach them. And also to me, of course, as parents, you want to promote their intellectual development and academic development. But even more, your role is to make sure you're helping them develop emotionally, especially at that age. Emotionally, how are they doing? How are they feeling? How are you connecting with them? That's much more important than academic or intellectual development or growth. You definitely want to engage with them verbally. That will be good for them both emotionally and for their developing brains and intellect. But more than anything for me, your job as a parent isn't to develop a good student, it's to develop a person who feels good emotionally and can take care of themselves emotionally. That's going to be much more valuable and much more the role of a parent. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. back. Uh, before the break, we talked to a caller who had a newborn child and she was talking about some issues she had or questions she had about communication or more specifically about reading to the child and trying to um, make the child have a love for reading, something that is a very good thing. Um, but at three months of age, I think there's not much that needs to be done yet. But later on, that is cur- definitely something that you can talk about and think about. But it made me want to talk some more about ideas or concepts related to communication with your kids and also just the role of a parent in general. Because a lot of times parents think their job is similar to what we think about in the education system, which also is a faulty idea, that I'm supposed to fill my child up with the right information or good things and what to do and not to do. And so we think of this child coming in as a blank slate, so to speak, and that our job is to make them into a good person. And good person is something that we have in our mind that we then want to impart on them. 
And the same thing goes with our education system or the traditional ways of doing education where we thought we have to just, we have these empty vaults, we have to fill them up with information and knowledge that the teacher has and then they just take it in. But in education that definitely doesn't work or is not the optimal way and misses a lot of what actually makes someone human and makes someone actually learn or grow. But especially as a parent, we're definitely not supposed to be in this way, just the teachers of our child in that traditional sense. And especially, um, of course, there is a lot of things we do teach our children. So I'm not saying it's not there at all. But the overall goal shouldn't be that I'm supposed to make my child become this. And this is some fixed idea that we have in our mind. That's not what we are supposed to do. As I like to say, and this analogy for me really is very fitting, for your child is that your job is to recognize your child is a seed that you have been given. And this seed is, we don't know exactly what it's supposed to look like. You don't know exactly what the result of this is supposed to be. But most of us think, I know what kind of plant I have to make this seed become. And because of that, we try to force that seed to become that plant. And we We'll water it and give it the things that it needs. But then also once it starts to grow, we start telling it, don't grow in that way. Don't become like that or pulling certain parts of it to lengthen it or move it around or change its color. And we try to make it or force it to grow into what we think is this ideal that we have in our mind, the ideal person of what they're supposed to be. But that's not what your role is as a parent. Your role is that you've been given this seed, but you actually don't know exactly what type of plant or flower it is supposed to become. Your role isn't to make it become a certain thing, but to actually help it grow to the best of its potential, to meet its potential to the fullest degree, to become whatever plant it was meant to be. And so this is the same thing with your kids. They're not supposed to become this person that you have in your mind. And we have to let go of those attachments. There are some basics I think that are important, like respect, respecting other people, being good to themselves, focusing on things that are beneficial to themselves and others, um, being caring, compassionate, empathic. Those are good qualities to have, but specifically what they're supposed to become and what they're supposed to look like, both physically and emotionally, intellectually, and as far as their personality and character goes, that's something that they have to become and develop. And your child is this wonderful, beautiful thing. And the more we get out of the way of letting them develop, the better and more beautiful they become. And if you actually look at that coming, I'll come back to this analogy, but even looking at ourselves and what we see happens is that every person has throughout their lives been given so many messages of don't be this way uh, or you should be this way and you can never be that way. This way is horrible and unlovable and bad. This way is good. This is better than that. He's better than her. She's better than him for whatever reasons. And because of all of that, we're all not expressing who we really are, who we could be in our core. And so it's interesting because we come into this world not really being affected by those things. And we are 
really who we are. And you see that in a lot of very young children. They're just being themselves. They don't think much about how it's going to look to others, especially if they're given that type of freedom. But then we get all these messages and go through, you know, being socialized. And then we change a lot of who we are to get what we think will be approval, to get what we think will be love, validation, the things we're searching for. And then we spend the rest of our lives often trying to find that true self again. And so one of your roles as a parent is to try to interfere as little as possible with the expression of that true self that your child has. And true self is a term that Winnicott talks about, uh, this idea that there is this true self, but if we interfere in different ways, the child can't express that true self. If you tell your child that certain feelings are good and some feelings are bad or that they shouldn't have feelings at all, or that when they do certain things, mommy doesn't love you or mommy doesn't like that. Or when you feel a certain way, mommy feels sad or daddy feels sad, so don't feel that way. Then the child learns not to express that true self. So our job again isn't to make them become a certain thing, but actually allow them to express whoever they are and whatever they are. We're given this seed that is more pure than what we are now. And we're supposed to make sure we don't interfere with that process of letting them become who they are. So as that plant or that seed begins to grow and flourish, some parts of it you might like or not like, or you might think they shouldn't be this way or they definitely should be this other way. But if we get in the way of them expressing who they actually are, we are just teaching them that who they are is not okay, a message that they'll carry with them the rest of their life. So if in your mind you have this idea that I know what a person is supposed to be like, we really should think twice about this thought because there isn't just one way of being a good person or there isn't just one way that we're supposed to be. And in certain cultures, we see this even more. Unfortunately, in the Iranian culture, we have a very judgmental culture. We care a lot about things like status and how we're going to look to other people. We have a very collectivist culture and we have a culture that's based on reputation for all types of things, even who you can or cannot marry or who's going to be available for you to marry. And because of a lot of those things and even more things in our culture, we are very judgmental and very big on telling people and of course, especially telling our kids, you definitely shouldn't be this way or you definitely should be this way. And even worse, sometimes you're an embarrassment or a shame to the family if you're this way, or if you are not doing these things, the family will be embarrassed. And those are all things that are getting, going to get in the way of someone being themselves, of being who they can actually be. And the truth is, none of us is this ideal human that we might have in our mind or this person that won't create any kind of discomfort or shame or embarrassment. Everyone has pluses and minuses, quirks that maybe other people might think are odd, things that they like that other people don't like, and that's that's okay. That's part of being who we are, and we have to not get in the way of people being who they are. And what I think is very sad is that we all have these parts of ourselves that maybe we don't like, or we all have feelings that we might think are not very good. But in cultures where we're told not to have those things, we all just try to deal with them on our own. 
And we all just think something's wrong with me because I have these feelings or I think these things or I want to do these things that everyone else thinks are bad. But we, what we don't know is that other people are suffering or dealing with those same things as well. So what we all do is we suffer in silence. We suffer alone. We think something is wrong with us. We think something is wrong with us for being human. Or we think something's wrong with us for experiencing things that we know are actually quite normal and okay. But we tell ourselves or we've been told that these are not okay things. So you have to really think about what are these ideals that you hold that you think a person is supposed to become. Because very often what we think we're supposed to do is to try to get our kids to become something that isn't even realistic, that isn't even healthy or normal. But we've made it normal or made it an ideal in our society. And now when we see our kids act in a certain way, we think our job is to get them to stop being themselves and to become something else or become someone else that we've determined is the right way of being. So as a parent, we have to look at those things that we hold in our mind. What do we feel good about ourselves and feel bad about ourselves? What do you experience when you see your child act in a certain way? Because very often what we see is that rather than being concerned with our child and what they're going through, we're so preoccupied with how it looks to other people that we harm our kids by telling them they're not okay being the way they are because we care about how we look in front of other people. And some of this we can understand, but we see this when a parent is out in public and their child is acting out, a big part of what they're experiencing is imagining all the eyes and the thoughts of the people around them, thinking they're a bad parent or thinking what's wrong with them or what's wrong with their kid and judging them and judging their child. So in that moment, we get caught up and fixated more on what other people think than what our child is actually experiencing and what is best for them. And I know it's easier said than done that when you're in a you know crowded place or you're around people and they're looking at you and your child is acting out, that's very easy to say, don't care what anyone else is thinking at all and only care about your child. I can understand that reaction, but we have to be aware that we are sometimes reacting because we want our child to be a certain way so that we look a certain way. And is that really coming from the right place? So our job, again, isn't to make our kids be a certain thing. And especially, we have to make sure we're not wanting our kids to be a certain thing because of how it's going to make us look to others. And if we are real with ourselves, we'll recognize that we're doing that a lot of the time. If my kid does this or that, um, imagine what other people will say, good or bad. So if my child does something really good, I can't wait to go tell other people or show that off because they're going to look at me positively by association that I'm a good parent, that look at my genes or however other ways we think about it, but we want it to reflect well on us. And the opposite, if my child does something, oh my gosh, I hope no one else finds out about this. I hope no one else sees this because it's going to look, make me look so bad. And so we're really focused on taking care of ourselves and how we look to other people rather than actually taking care of our kids. And how sad that is, that the thoughts and feelings of other people and what they might do and how they might judge us can affect the way that we treat our child and the way we make our child feel about themselves. Because kids, they, they see and they feel these things when they see that you don't want other people to know about something they did or didn't do or something they're going through. And they're being taught that parts of you are 
things that need to be hidden, parts of you are shameful. They bring shame to your family. They should bring shame to you. And we don't want anyone to see those things. How different is it when you tell your child that whoever they are and however they are, it is okay, that they are lovable no matter what, that you are proud of them or that you are loving of them no matter what they are. And by that, I don't mean that we reinforce behaviors that are hurtful to them or other people or tell them when they do something destructive that they did a good thing. So we do have to have a realistic relationship and connection with our children. But there's a big difference between saying an action isn't very good or that we can do it better and you're ashamed to this family and you should be ashamed of who you are and what you're doing. There's a big difference between those things. So we can realistically relate to our children and let them know how we think or feel about things and explore with them ways of what we can do to be the best versions of ourselves, which we're all striving to be. But if we're so focused on how it looks to other people, that's a big problem. So coming back to this analogy of the seed, if you have an idea that I want my child to become this certain flower because that's what's going to look good to other people, that's a big problem. But if you say, I want my child to become who he or she can be to the fullest for that seed to grow into whatever plant or flower they are supposed to come and then be proud of whatever that is, that's going to send them a very different message about being lovable, about being okay, and that they can express themselves whoever they might be. And that's the message you want to give your kids. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Studio number 3104410555. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello? Yes, hi. Hi. Hi, doctor. I talked with you before and I asked you. My English is not very good. I have an accent. That's okay. I asked about my grandson. I felt he's a gay. And you felt he was sorry. You felt he was sorry. Okay, sorry, I couldn't. Hello. Hello. Sorry, we can't. I can't hear you very well. It's coming in very. Are you on speakerphone? No. No. Oh. Maybe I changed my. Okay, is that better? It's now? actually a lot better now. I couldn't hear almost what you said from the beginning. You you said you called before. You thought your grandson was, uh, you know, not was it straight, but he that he was gay. Was, yeah, but okay. uh, but Dan was lying. He wanted attention. Then I see he has a beautiful girlfriend, okay. and he he is um, now seventeen years old. Okay. And uh, this I am brought in this because last week we went. To my another grandson, he he's bigger than this. He graduated last week. Me and my daughter and my gra- uh, my son-in-law, uh, we went for his graduation. And this the one is smaller. The one I uh, I'm saying he's creaky. He was not there. I say why not? Uh, you know. Uh, then uh, my daughter said, 
say, oh, don't worry. He, he, he's a little bit unworthy, but he's sad. He's crying. He's not himself. I say, when he's coming with the girlfriend and the, he just leaves, he doesn't want to support the brother. That's what the problem is. And then my daughter said, no, mama, don't judge like that. I am really, really worried. And when we went home, he want to come with us, go eat. I said, no, you told me you're sick. So what is going on, you know? And he put his back, her head, and go in his room. And we bought some. Hello? 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 Yes, hi. Yeah. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, the sound. there's some issues we're having with the sound. There's some echo. I don't know if it's where you are or what's going on. Um, but there, the sound quality is not coming in very good. I could hear what you were saying. It was a little bit hard to hear it at times. Um, I'm not sure if you're... Is the radio on or is there anything, other sounds around you? No, the radio I turn off. Okay. I, I turn off the, my radio was right. on before. It, it's a little bit better now, but let's we'll see how it goes. Okay. So what is your question or what's your concern? My concern is this is two brothers, you know, one year different one and two, three months. And the little one, not support the big one. Big one is supporting him, but he's tricky. He, he, you know, he say, oh, I am this, I am that. Then you see 100% lie or trick. He's not gay. He loves women more than the other one. And then he don't come support the graduation for the brother. And the other thing, my daughter crying for him, is I see how he's tricky, you know, how he's bad, and make everybody tricky. And my son in love with me, he say, you're right, but uh, my daughter cannot see. And then I'm telling my daughter, look, see what he's tricky? And my daughter said, no, you know, so I want to see what can I do. Well, the thing is, well, first of all, as a grandparent, there's not so much you can do, and you... I don't think you should be so involved, even like saying he can't come out to dinner. I don't know if that's your decision to make, even if he said something or didn't say something. Um, but that that's a separate issue. I did want to go back first to the issue. You said he said he was gay and then he now has a girlfriend. And so you think he was tricking you guys or I, I, I'm not sure if I understood what you meant there. Did he say, I think I'm gay or what did he say? No, he didn't say, you know, he say, oh, this woman, all problems. Uh, and, then, you know, I am, I don't know, he said, oh, he, he acts like, you know, but he was not there. He act with the hand and play game because he's a judo, judoist, he's a number one judoist, he's very okay. nice. And then uh, he fast play, I thought he's dancing, then, the, you know, little by little he, he act like, he play games, and everybody, ah, my daughter cry, I cry, I say, I hope not. Then we, you know, I... Well, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm still not sure when you say play games, what did, uh, and first of all, if he was gay, to me, that would be something that is okay, and we have to, you can't, we can't change his sexuality, and I would hope we would just accept him as he is. I was just talking about that in the previous segment. I'm still not clear what you mean when you're saying he plays games what did did he say i think i am gay or what did he say don't just tell me about hands and those kinds of things what did he actually say no nothing say but he act 
he play, he dress, he, you know, just make everybody believe he's uh, not the way we want. You know, I, I, I'm talking straight, you know, I am saying honestly. I understand. And, but, yeah, I'm, but you told me love them, whatever. Yes. I, I say, okay, my daughter, we have to love him, whatever he is. Then, after one week, I see he change and he's very serious and he says, no, who talk this? You know, I am not this. And he got a girlfriend and show off and uh, so, so love, fall in love with him and still they are, they are together. Well, but I am thinking, why is David, he's a mental, why he do this? Okay, so there's a few things and maybe some of it's language. I mean, saying he's mental, that's a very, uh, you know, that's not the word I would use. You also before said he is bad. Um, also something I wouldn't say to him, or it's very much judging him as who he is as a person. But we have to look at a bigger picture of what's going on. First of all, regarding his sexuality, I'm, it's still very confusing to me exactly what was going on. But we don't know what is happening. Because even if he does have a girlfriend now, um, that doesn't mean that he's necessarily straight or that he... Maybe he could even be bisexual, or maybe we, because of the pressure he feels from you guys, he's doing something. I don't know what's going on, but I think there's a lot of pressure on him to be a certain way. And even when you tell me he's tricky, he's tricky, he's bad, this goes back to some of the ideas parents have that their kid was just born lying or their kid was born being tricky. We have to look at the bigger picture of what's going on in the home. Why does the kid feel like they can't just directly tell you what's going on or directly express themselves? It's not just this bad kid that we have to look at. We have to look at the bigger picture. And even the way you talk about things, and I know you're the grandparent, but even in your, with your involvement, it just seems like there's a lot of pressure to be a certain way or not be a certain way or a lot of judgments that are happening in the family and that's going to affect how comfortable it's going to be for him to express himself and be who he is. So I wouldn't say, oh, he's tricky, he's bad, as some kind of, we figured him out and he's the problem. I would say if he's being tricky, why does he feel like he has to be tricky with us? Why does he feel like he can't just be honest with us? And so if you just look at him as a problem, that to me is a problem. That's not the right way of looking at this situation to just judge him as somehow there's something wrong just with him, and he's the problem, and that's it. Yeah, doctor, you're right. But in Farsi, I just talked to my daughter, smooth and nice, because it's, uh, they suffer a lot when uh, my daughter married and divorced now with another guy. So these children never, you know, they saw, especially this uh, little one, uh, saw the father, but they, they, they divorce or they get um, too much what they say. In English, I forgot. You know, fight. Yeah. Uh, so, so now, now they're living with a stepfather. Yeah, a okay. stepfather is good to them, very good and uh, spoiled. But then he, he also he don't like. He I don't like when he's not supporting the brother, or when we want him, he's getting high, and then he uh, play look like he's uh, sad or crying. You know, I see when girlfriend come, he act look like you know. Well, but you know, but even you're saying he's whenever he's crying, you're saying it's fake. I don't know if it is or not, but you know, it does seem like a lot of what he does. You keep saying it's not fake, it's fake or not real. Uh, I'm not sure. And you know, the parents they were fighting a lot. They went through a divorce that has the effect on him. He's living with a stepfather. We can't expect that to be an 
a smooth relationship just because you're saying he's good. So I still feel like the way you're talking about the situation is the kid is a problem and it's just his fault, anything that's happening. But And I'm saying we have to look more at the bigger picture, look at what else is going on around him. If he's lying or hiding, why does he feel that way? If he feels like he's, you know, first of all, in yeah. teenage years, they do experience experience some ideas of trying to figure out their identity so if you're seeing him express different things it doesn't mean he's being tricky maybe he's trying to figure things out but when it comes to sexuality even i would let him you know we can't change whatever that is and we have to let him express whoever he is but i still feel like everything you describe you're saying he's the problem the only issue is this younger son and i think that's not really being realistic to looking at the whole situation yeah, yeah, and then, uh, you know, this is six, seven years now with the stepdad. And the stepdad is, uh, you know, officer, whatever it is, is you know, he, he he's very straight. They are good together. But um, my daughter say, you know, I asked my daughter why she, she's not coming today. It's very big, uh, big things, you know. And she said, I don't know, she, he's same as me. He thinks nobody can understand him. He's so sensitive. He's this, he's that, he's sad, I am worried about him. Maybe he wanna kill himself. I said, stop it. He is spoiled. He's not the way you think. I told my daughter in Farsi and um, so, you know, and my daughter said, I don't know what can I do. I said, Take it to doctors. What is wrong with him? Uh -huh. You know? And then um, she said he's not coming and uh, but another day I see he's perfect. Look like he's king of kingdom of the uh, England. I can't believe it. You know, it's up and down, up and down. It's hurting me. But sure, I understand. And I don't know the whole situation, but somehow it seems like you're saying if he's up and down, the downs have to be fake. But they yes. might not be fake. He might really be down sometimes and be up sometimes. Even the ups can be fake. I mean, I don't know the whole situation, but you're making a lot of assumptions that if he's sad, he's faking it because later on he was happy. Whereas you see a lot of people that are actually very down, but then sometimes they put on a happy face to make other people feel okay or for whatever reason. So I still think the way you look at him is a very judgmental, negative way. Like he's this really bad kid. And to me, thats I don't think that's true of anyone. And I think that's not going to be a good way of dealing with him, of just you're bad and you're a problem. I do think it would be good for him to see someone, but not just because he's bad, but because he seems to be suffering and that can help him. Yes, you're right. One time I have, I told him, do not go next near the beach, you know, because we go to country. And he went and, yeah, and I said, he was six years old. I said, see, when I'm telling you, he don't listen. He go and then he came back. And then, you know, we cook and I said, this is hot, uh, you know, pepper hot, but he, he took it anyway. He took and uh, he wanted, uh, he don't believe me. He don't trust, you know, and I said, okay. But the, right, but he's not supposed to just listen to you. And, you know, so again, you're kind of saying even from six years old, he was bad is what I feel like you're doing now. Yeah. You're trying yeah. to tell me how bad this kid has always been. And I, I'm letting you know I don't I don't agree with that. And because he didn't listen to you doesn't mean he's bad. He's not supposed to just listen to what you say and do whatever yeah, you're, yeah. you want him to do. So I think for me that's a very important thing to look at, this idea that I feel you have very strongly that he's a bad kid because the other brother doesn't act out the same way. And sometimes the other brother maybe has a lot of feelings too but is holding them in. 
So if we just look at the behavior, it's not everything. And maybe this younger brother is dealing with a lot, but I think the mentality that he's the problem, he's bad, which I heard you say, and maybe it was a language thing, but you said he's bad, that to me is not good. And it seems like right now I feel like you're trying to just give me more evidence to prove your argument that he was bad even from a young age. But if you tell me a six-year-old, I said do this and he didn't do it, I don't think he's a bad kid. Okay. So, okay, I guess, you know, I try to not uh, argue when I go. I don't say uh, only hi and bye. I don't argue with him and nothing, you know, but um, it's when my daughter cry and ask me to watch him, he's a young man. And now I, I want to say to my daughter, you know, I'm out of it. Really, this is so monkey playing up and down. I cannot handle it. Well, I mean, maybe you think you can't handle it. I don't know the whole situation, and your your daughter, of course, is having a hard time with it too. But I just I feel like you're very angry at your younger this grandson. Yes. And that's something yes. I want you to think about because, and maybe he's doing things that are not okay. I don't know the whole story, but you're very angry with him, and everything you describe is that he's bad, he's wrong, he's hurting my daughter. Even I feel like you're protective of your daughter towards her son, where it's her job to manage her son. You can be supporting her in some way, but to, you're, you're almost mad at the son. And maybe there's bigger things we have to look at of how she's treated him or the way their life has gone or the way things are in the home that's contributing to what's happening. But as long as we just see him as the problem, I have a problem with that. We have to look at the whole family structure and things that are going on. There could be things going on within him that were always there. Maybe he has some issues with impulse control or, I, I don't know, when you say he, had a, you know, he would have to touch things and get hurt, maybe he has some things going on. But I wouldn't just look at him as the, the problem and say, that's it, and he has to get fixed and everything else is okay. We're probably missing things that are going on in the family that need to be looked at and addressed. And that's something to think about. But if you're, I get that you're very angry with him, but to me, that's going to interfere with you even being able to help the situation because everything that happens... You see him as the problem. Whereas to me, if he's doing monkey business or whatever it is you want to call it, we want to try to understand why is he doing that. And if your idea is because he's bad, well, that, that's always going to end up with the same conclusion. He did this because he's bad. Now he does this because he's bad. But what if we find out he's doing this because he's suffering? He's doing this because he's hurt. He's doing this because he feels like he's not allowed to be who he is. Or he's doing this because he's still dealing with conflict he has with his dad, who I don't know where he is now in the situation. So I would rather you have a stance of curiosity, of trying to understand, rather than a stance of just judging him negatively as being a bad kid. Because if he's a bad kid, there's nothing, what can we do to fix it? Basically, all you're saying is go send him to a doctor to fix him and then bring him home, which is not how it works anyway. But if we try to understand why he's acting the way he is or why he does what he does, we might actually understand the situation better and maybe make some changes that does improve the situation. But to me, focusing on him as a bad kid is the wrong mentality. It has to be more of let's try to understand. And if you're so upset that oh my daughter's crying so this bad boy makes my daughter cry your daughter is his mom she has to deal with him and figure out how to deal with him that's her responsibility so we can't just say hey boy stop being bad because mommy gets sad that's not how it works we have to look at the whole situation and work on the whole situation mm, yeah you're right for example he was birthday you know and i bought the nice cake and whatever food he wants and then he don't eat the cake. I said, well, you, you, you like this cake? He said, no, I'm not going to eat it. Okay. I said, fine. 
And uh, he does this. And last week he said, my brother, two years off, he's going to get uh, in, you know, school, get a diploma. He want to jump. And already he's not stupid in the school. He's good. So he's, um, he want to go get graduate. Um, I don't know when, but very soon. So Bibi, we brought her two, two things. What is this? Why he's comparing himself with his brother? Well, I mean, I don't know exactly why, but it seems like you're comparing him with his brother all the time. Yeah, so, I do. Okay, so, I mean, so the family seems like the comparison is happening. So when you say, how could he? It seems like comparison is something that happens a lot in the family. You're constantly comparing him, the bad kid, to the good brother, the good older brother. So, uh, I mean, again, I, I feel like you are really angry at this grandson, and um, it's something to think about, but it's not going to help you, or it's not even going to allow you to help them, because you're so angry at him, and you see him as just the problem. Uh, and even anything he does, oh, he wants to graduate early now, what a bad kid for wanting to compare himself to his brother. I mean, I don't know, that could be seen as a good thing, that he wants to graduate early. Maybe it's not the right decision, I don't know the whole situation. But everything you tell me, you just see him in such a negative way, you see him as all bad. And you see the older one is all good. And neither one of those is true. And again, the issues you're dealing with, with your younger grandson, are not just because of him. He's not bad, and I want you to get that idea out of your head, if you can, that he's just a bad person, and he's bad at his core. Because you're also giving him that message that you're bad, rather than, you know what, he's probably suffering or struggling in some way. He's yeah, doing yeah. tricky things because he feels like he can't be himself, he can't be honest, he can't be open. It's not just him being bad. And as long as we have that mentality, we're not going to be able to help him. Yes, that's, that's right, that's true. So what can I do, you know, I try not to show my emotional or... Yeah, well, I mean, that's why, you know, you're telling him to go to therapy. It might not be bad for you to go for his mom to go. Because you're not yeah. going to be able to hold those feelings from him. And he's going to feel it. So at least you can't control him and whether he goes, but you can control yourself. It might not be a bad idea for yourself to go talk to someone to deal with these feelings. And then maybe you can't even be more supportive. You're not going to make the biggest change. As a grandparent, your role can't be to fix the situation. It has to come more from within the family. But I would say, why not get your own therapy to help yourself? You're right. That's what I am asking you for this matter. I say, you know, he's a teenager. Maybe he's a teenager. And my daughter, when she's same thing, she thought, you know, we don't, understand her when she was young that's a common exactly that's a common thing teenagers experience which is partially true and even the way you're talking about it i don't get the feeling you guys are showing him that you understand him very well so there's something to it i don't think you guys are making him feel very understood so you're right and look what you experienced yourself with your own daughter his mom was the same thing and so your daughter was probably right you didn't fully understand her and the way I'm still hearing you talk about the son, I can see the judgmentalness and how you're talking in constant comparisons. So maybe you gave her that feeling too. And now we're doing the same thing with the grandson. We're passing it on another generation of judging someone for not being good, for being bad. And that's a big problem. So to me, the issue is less about how to make him stop being tricky, but more about trying to understand the bigger picture and why does he feel the way he does why is he going through what he goes through and yes some of it is natural teenage years of experiencing different things exploring your identity 
some rebelliousness tends to come out in this age too, especially depending on what the child has experienced. So some of this might be some more normal things, but the label of him as bad is going to affect a lot of things, and that's something to be aware of. Okay. Thank you for sure. telling me. My, my pleasure. Nice talking to you. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Have a Thank good you. Day. you too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Back. In the previous segment, the caller was talking about her grandson, and she did bring up the issue of sexuality and, and um, that they were concerned that he might have been gay or what exactly he was expressing in some of his behaviors or actions. And I wanted to make the connection with what she brought up, um, with what I've been talking about throughout the show in a few different ways, which is the idea of letting your child become whoever they are. And this issue can be very significant when it comes to something like sexuality, because going back to what I was saying in that same segment, we might have our own judgments and ideas or ideals of what a person should be and shouldn't be. And for many people, the idea of sexuality can be a big component of that, that being heterosexual, being straight is the right way to be and any other way to be is wrong. And so this is why we do have to look at the biases we hold as individuals when we become parents, because we're going to bring those into the ways that we relate to our kids and the ways we allow them to be certain ways or not be certain ways. So to begin with, the idea that we can affect our child's sexuality, whether they're going to be homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual, is something that we have to try to get rid of or realize we're not going to have an impact. Because I think sometimes I've heard parents say, well, I think my child is at a very young age, it looks like maybe he's going to be gay. What should I do? And maybe they try to toughen him up or uh, introduce women to him or show pictures or videos or whatever to make him become straight or to push him in that direction. And it doesn't seem that sexuality works that way. So first as parents, you have to also take off this pressure that I'm supposed to make my kids be straight or that I can have an effect because you can't. But before that, as I was just mentioning, we have to hopefully let go of this idea that my kids should be straight or that that is the right way to be. Fortunately, we're living in a day and age where things are becoming better for all sorts of different minorities, including sexual minorities or people of who are not heterosexual. And that's a good thing. We're moving in that direction. Um, but also as a parent, your role isn't to judge them or to try to make them something, but to accept them as they are. And this is a big issue when it comes to sexuality, because we know that many people dealing with trying to understand their own sexuality go through a lot of different emotional issues and exploration issues and identity issues and they feel a bunch of things and one of the reasons why they feel a lot of things when they're trying to understand who they are is that if they're not heterosexual they very often have 
negative judgments about that within themselves. And these negative judgments come from a lot of places, of course, from the larger society and culture, but then also very importantly from their own family and their parents. And so as a parent, if you've shown that you're judgmental towards people who are not heterosexual, so people who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, then if your child is dealing with those issues and they're not sure who they are and they're thinking maybe they're not straight, then they're going to internalize that judgment on themselves and they'll think bad about themselves. They'll feel ashamed of themselves. They'll feel maybe they have to hide who they are or even worse, commit suicide, try to take their own life because they feel like they're not okay being who they are. And how sad that is that some people feel that for being born a certain way, they're somehow unacceptable and unlovable, almost unacceptable to themselves. And so as a parent, you have to make sure you're not giving your kid that message that somehow being a certain way, being born a certain way, can make them unlovable, can make them somehow bad at the core. And to make sure that they realize they're actually lovable, whoever they are, and to give them that space to explore who they are. Many people don't actually get in contact with their sexuality, or I should say, because heterosexuality is essentially the default, they assume they're heterosexual, but then much later in life, even after they've been married or they've had kids, they come to this understanding or realization that they haven't fully explored who they are and see that maybe there's more to their sexuality than they originally thought. There is much more there. And part of what's getting in the way of someone genuinely exploring who they are is the fear that we have of being judged and being mistreated, both by people on the outside, but even within our own family. We know that there is a higher proportion of LGBTQ youth who are homeless compared to straight counterparts and the reason is one of the reasons is because many people are disowned still or kicked out of their homes or opportunities are taken away from them when they come out to their families and share that they are not straight and that is heartbreaking it is so sad that this is still happening again for being born a certain way something that's out of your control you are judged in such a negative way or also really for being a certain way that has no negative impact on others you are being judged and treated poorly and that's something else i wanted to mention in this segment is that the way we judge people for not being straight is something that we have to think about again i'm actually looking forward to reading the book of the week blind spot looking at hidden biases of good people because a lot of us are going to have negative biases about a lot of groups and homosexual uh, individuals is definitely one of the groups that can have that negative biases that many of us hold. So you might have this negative judgment about them, and that's something to think about. Why do I think negatively about this group of people? And very often we think it's because of moral issues or we figured something out. But usually we realize it's just an emotional thing, something that we feel because of these messages we've gotten from a very young age, even maybe something in our collective unconscious telling us that this is not something good going back many generations and maybe even thousands of years. But really, what difference does it make who someone is attracted to or who they want to be with? Why should that affect us and why should we think of them in a negative way if they have that feeling or that desire? 
That's not something that affects us, who someone else wants to be with, who someone else wants to marry. That's up to them. But very often we're so judgmental of people for that reason. I think that's very sad and something for us to think about. And so for you, if you're a parent, to think about these issues and do I want to make my child feel bad for potentially being who they are and giving them that space to explore who they are. And I hope we can be much more compassionate, kind, and loving to all people, um, no matter what their race, ethnicity is, age, sex, and sexuality, that we can hopefully see all people as humans and that we don't need to judge them or we shouldn't judge them for anything that makes them who they are and to love them and accept them as they are, but especially as a parent, to love and accept our par- our kids for being whoever they might be and giving that them that message very clearly. All right, we've reached our last commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In this last segment, I wanted to um, actually in some ways bring you back to the book I talked about today, The Strange Order of Things by Antonio Damasio. And uh, the subtitle is Life, Feeling, and the Making of Cultures. And I was talking about feelings and obviously something that I talk about a lot. And as he talks about in the book, we are always having a feeling state, positive or negative, feeling that things are good and going in a good direction as far as the well-being of us overall or not in a good direction or we're not doing well and we have to do something about it. And as we always talk about or as I always mention, that's why our feelings are so important and why we want to be in touch with them, um, even the unpleasant ones, because the unpleasant feelings, the ones that are negative, they're giving us information as all of our feelings are giving us. If something's not okay, we want to make it better. And so that's why even the experience of physical pain, although it's definitely not pleasant, we know that it's so important and vital to our survival because we need to know if something is physically not okay with our body to respond to it. The feelings are not just feelings so we have the experience of discomfort, the discomfort is signaling something to us that we need to, to address something. Something's not okay. My leg is hurting. What's going on? My, there's bleeding. We need to respond to it. There's something we feel. So we see that our feelings are very important because they give us information. And this also goes back to this idea that sometimes people have that it's better to be rational than to be emotional or better to be rational than to have feelings. And so there's two things with that. One is that we always have feelings. They're always there. So we can't have just rational without feelings. We always will have that part of ourselves. But the second thing is that when we just try to ignore feelings and pretend like they don't exist, what we're also doing is ignoring a lot of information. That is also actually going to help us in making decisions, whether the decision is about a relationship or something about our physical body or whatever it might be. Feelings are part of the information that we have at our disposal. And so if we ignore that, we're actually missing a lot. But so coming back to this idea of positive and negative feelings, we can say that the positive ones are the ones that feel pleasant, like happiness, joy, Um, excitement, and that these 
positive feelings give us the idea or tell our body that, or our brain, that we are okay, that we're doing well, that things are good. And then we have what we consider the negative emotions, the ones that don't feel good. They feel unpleasant. Things like sadness, uh, anger, envy, jealousy. And in the book, he talks a little bit about them, but I thought that in a way he made it seem that the negative ones are bad. And he did talk about how anger can lead to things like violence and aggression that hurt ourselves sometimes, even hurt loved ones, can hurt others, but almost that he mentioned or talked about them as just negative things that almost like we shouldn't have them. Um, not Maybe not that's not maybe justifying or may, maybe uh, making it too black or white. He didn't make it that clear, but I thought maybe there could have been more of an emphasis on the positive aspects of what we call the negative emotions, because I think they clearly exist for a reason. They are very important for us to recognize that they have value. Because, for example, if you're angry, that means that something has happened that you feel unjustifiably has hurt you, whether it's someone taking something of yours or someone hurting you in some way. But something's going on where you feel wronged in some way. And that is important for you to respond to, because if people wronged you and you never responded to it, then... Well, people could take advantage of you, people could take your resources, people could take anything from you, and you just wouldn't respond. And that wouldn't be good, and of course wouldn't be good for contributing to your survival. You need to have that response. It's actually healthy in that way. Now the thing with anger, something I've talked about many times before, is that it can be expressed in ways that are very unhealthy and ways that are healthy. And maybe in the more, um, in our ancestors' times, it was a lot of times good to respond in angry reactions that were more violent or aggressive because you have to show that you can't do those things to me or that um, you can't take that from me or maybe that you would even start to fight for what it was that was being taken or being threatened to be taken from you. There could have been an adaptive advantage to that that made sense. But we now know that most of the times when something makes us angry or someone makes us angry, very often it's actually a loved one, someone that we care about, someone that we really care about their well-being and their well-being and our well-being are sometimes very much interlinked. And so to respond with violence and aggression with our anger is actually going to be hurtful to us. So in that way, I agree with what Antonio Damasio talks about. And I agree with that in general, that responding with violence is not going to be almost ever the right response. There are some maybe extreme cases, but overall that's not going to be good. And that's where anger shows its negative side, that one of the ways we respond to anger is with anger, with uh, aggression and violence. And that is hurtful because usually when we feel anger now, it's someone we care about doing something that hurts us in an emotional way. It's not literally in that moment affecting our survival, but we feel hurt by them. And so if we respond with anger, with that aggression or with violence, it's going to be hurtful to them and someone that we care about. It hurts us too. And so that's what we see with a lot of people when we say they have an anger problem. Usually what we mean is that they express their anger in ways that are destructive, that hurt other people, or that even hurt themselves or both. And that's what makes it a problem. But anger itself is not a problem. 
anger something we we need to feel and we need to be able to experience but then express in a healthy way we can express in ways that actually can promote the well-being of our relationships rather than just hurt us so anger itself doesn't have to be a bad thing and the same thing goes with sadness sadness doesn't feel good and in my experience working with people both professionally but also just personally relating to people you see that it's a a feeling that most of us try to get away from we try to avoid we try to distract ourselves from our sadness or when we see someone crying we quickly think we have to get them to stop crying because we think of sadness as this really bad negative thing and if they're feeling that we want to make that pain disappear but sadness itself again is a is telling us something and if we miss that information we're missing something very important that someone maybe is making us feel bad or feel down or something is making us feel that way and we have to attend to that and respond to that we don't want to ignore that information so when something makes us sad we want to connect with that sadness to understand what is going on why am i experiencing this but if we stay disconnected from our feelings and try not to feel it we're going to miss out on that information something that can be important so for example you might be at a job that makes you sad that doesn't make you happy doesn't make you feel good and we can think it's better just to avoid our feelings and not know that but if we actually connect to that feeling we'll see that something is making us unhappy and maybe we need to make a change going back to the idea of feelings going back to survival the whole thing is that we need the feelings to quickly tell us something is not okay or to inform us of something and then to act on that so for our ancestors it wasn't that this career isn't very fulfilling but now we know that we still have those same feelings and that we can experience them and they're still telling us the vital information that something is not okay so when we talk about positive and negative feelings the positive and negative doesn't mean that they are good to have or bad to have the positive and the negative is that the feeling is pleasant or unpleasant or that it's telling us that things are moving in a good direction about what we're experiencing or what's happening to us or that something is not okay but both of them are important and both of them uh, need to be felt experienced and then acted on or help us inform what actions to take next we don't want to miss them and so because of that we have to be careful that this idea of positive and negative feelings doesn't mean that we should only feel the positive ones and not feel the negative ones and that's a conclusion that many people have we should always be happy we should never be sad if i'm feeling sad somehow that's bad if i'm feeling happy that's the only thing that's good the only thing that matters or even that i should artificially make myself happy either by denying my pain and just pretending to be happy or even taking a substance or engaging in some kind of unhealthy behavior just to try to feel happy in that moment or to avoid my sadness that's the danger we have when we make the conclusion that the feelings that feel bad are bad and should be avoided and only feelings that feel good should be the ones that we experience we can start to go down unhealthy paths that actually don't allow us to get all the information from what's going on in our lives and then coming back to the feeling or the idea of meditation and mindfulness this is what we're aiming to do and i talked about this in last week's book what that was about meditation that the idea isn't when you meditate that you're only going to feel 
good feelings. The idea is that you're connecting more to your feelings and actually there will be all sorts of feelings, positive and negative, pleasant and unpleasant, happiness and good feelings, but also sadness and anger that you want to connect to because they're there. They're going to be there. And you want to be more connected to that experience of what you're going through. And again, we always talk about this idea that we can't get away from our feelings. And that's what this book also showed to me again, because it reminded me that we always have a feeling state. Whether or not you want to acknowledge it, that's going to be up to you and how connected you are to yourself. But we always have feelings. And so if we try to pretend like they're not there, we can't succeed because they always will be there. And the more we try to fight them and pretend like they're not there, the more they will affect us under the radar, the more they will be there for us. So we have to be in touch with our own feelings, good and bad. And then if we get to that point, when we realize that sad feelings are not bad feelings, or that the unpleasant feelings aren't ones that we should just eliminate, hopefully we can then take that same mentality with our children and realize as I was mentioning before about letting them be whoever they are, that also emotionally we shouldn't judge their feelings as good or bad. What they feel is what they're feeling. And we want to always empathize and validate whatever that is. And also realize that they're going to feel all of the feelings. They're just not always going to feel positive and feel good, but they're going to feel angry and sad and jealous and envious and all sorts of the negative ones too. And we want to actually allow them to experience them to express them and help them understand those feelings better rather than making them feel bad for feeling the unpleasant feelings because that's natural and part of being who they are. And when we send them that message that they're bad for feeling those feelings, they start to judge themselves negatively too. But rather when we show them, whatever you're feeling, it's okay. Whatever you're experiencing, I want to understand that. And I'm going to show you that It's understandable that you feel that way. We can understand why you're angry, why you're sad. And also things will get better. It's going to be okay. Then they can actually have a healthier relationship with their own feelings and be better at expressing them too. Because the more we teach them that their feelings are okay, the more it allows them to express their feelings in an okay way. To not express their anger with rage. To not hold in their anger to the point where they can't anymore and comes out in a bad way. That they can let us know, I'm angry. I'm upset. I'm sad. But when we tell them those feelings are bad, all we're teaching them is to put those feelings away, to not allow them to express them in healthier ways and experience that I'm healthy for experiencing all the feelings, good, bad, whatever they might be. So I thought this was an interesting point that the book made, The Strange Order of Things, Antonio Damasio's book, that emotions are something or feelings are something that give us an idea of how we're doing in relation to our survival, what's going on. And they have a valence of positive or negative, which tells us are things currently in a direction that's helping us feel okay and helping us grow, or are they actually hurting us or something negative is going on. But both of those things are information that we need and that can actually contribute to our survival and overall well-being. The unpleasant feelings aren't all bad. They actually have a very important and meaningful role in our lives. All right, and before we wrap up the show for today, I wanted to also announce again the book of the week for this week. It is Blind Spot by Mazarin Banaji and Anthony Greenwald. Blind Spot Hidden Biases of Good People. So I'll uh, have that book ready for Monday night's show. 
Look forward to being with you then. Uh, thank you to all the callers and the listeners out there and to Rahman, who is here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Alakwi. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.